coming up on Economics Explored. Since at least the late 1970s for a country like the United States, we've been in a progress recession. The GDP has grown, 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 but these alternative metrics, whether it be GPI or surveys on quality of life or the ecological footprint, these things have not improved. They have not kept up with the pace of growth, right? Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney, broadcasting from Brisbane, Australia. This is episode 166 on The Progress Illusion, a new book from John Erickson, Professor of Sustainability Science and Policy at the University of Vermont. Professor Erickson is past president of the US Society for Ecological Economics and is an advisor to state and national policymakers, including Senator Bernie Sanders. Please check out the show notes for relevant links and information and for details where you can get in touch with any questions or comments. Let me know what you think about what either John or I have to say in this episode. I'd love to hear from you. Right, hi, now for my conversation with Professor John Erickson on his new book, The Progress Illusion. Thanks to my audio engineer, Josh Crotz, for his assistance in producing this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Professor John Erickson, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, John, to have you on. I've uh, read your new book, uh, Progress: The Progress Illusion, Reclaiming Our Future, from the fairy tale of economics. So uh, given this is an economics podcast, there's definitely a lot to talk about with your new book. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask? Yes, yes. Uh, so can I ask you first, why do you think progress is an illusion? What are you trying to communicate in this book, please? Sure, sure. Yeah, so the progress illusion is is really a, a reference to a, to a fairy tale of humanity's place and purpose in the world. Um, certainly economics isn't the only discipline that is subject to this illusion, but it's the one that I'm trained in. It's a story that economists like myself have been teaching and practicing for decades. Decades that, you know, every time we see the size of the global economy double, which doubles every 25, 30 years at current growth rates, that uh, we erode the very foundations of life and human societies in the process. So in this book, I, I, I question that that reigning logic, that reigning story. Um, I unpack the various dimensions of this grand illusion of economics, um, you know, which I see as, a, as an illusion of history. In a lot of economics programs, mine included, we don't teach the history of economic thought. We don't discuss the debates of, of economists of the past. Um, it's an illusion of the individual. I mean, so much of the, the focus of economics is on the individual and what's best for the individual in the assumption that whatever's best for the individual is best for society. So I unpack that and think about the, you know, the, the debates over that question. Um, it's an illusion of choice. I mean, economics sort of sets itself up as the science of choice. But it's always framed as choice at the margin, right? The choice of the next incremental decision. Um, yet when you add up all those decisions together, we very often get into situations that the original decision makers never would have voted for, right? And ultimately, uh, it's an illusion of growth, an illusion of, uh, you know, a sort of fairy tale or dream of infinite economic growth on a finite planet. Gotcha. I think it's interesting you mentioned that there were these debates and they're not always well covered in economics. So I remember 
Well, I remember learning at least about Malthus and there was the Malthusian uh, prediction or his, uh, his view that, well, we're in trouble because any economic growth we had, we'd just end up having more children and we'd be back to subsistence. Whereas uh, I think the way that economists started to view that was, oh, well, we solve that problem with technological progress. And, uh, but I mean, uh, look, I, I understand the point that that's in a few hundred years or, a, or over the last uh, couple of hundred years, say, we've, we've been able to do that. Who knows if that can continue indefinitely? I mean, who knows what shocks are coming? So, I mean, maybe, is that what you're arguing? We, we, could, be, we could be too optimistic based on recent history? Well, look, I mean, we're recording this in the second week of November during uh, the latest conference of parties for the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Um, and there's ample evidence to show that this economic system we've created is putting dangerous strains on the global climate system, right? A climate system that is, is increasingly called, called as, as chaos, as, uh, as uh, in danger of you know, collapsing the whole experiment of the economy. So, um, you know, we can go back to Malthus if you'd like, but we've always seen that a growing economy creates benefits and costs. And what we've seen particularly over the last three or four decades is as those benefits have become super, super concentrated and the costs have been spread out on more and more people and especially on future generations. So we're in kind of a, you know, yet again, another kind of Malthusian tra tragedy. Right. And so is that your biggest concern at the moment, climate change or are there other concerns? There are plenty of concerns to go around, but having a habitable planet is a big one. It's a big one that uh, fellow economists are concerned about. Um, you know, economists have been part of various sig sig signatories to various pledges of action. Um, it's a concern that's related to um, the mass extinction. It's a concern that's related to growing inequality and persistent poverty um, and declining quality of life, even in the richest countries. You know, I think it was uh, uh, I think it was Alcoholics Anonymous, right? That said, you know, when you do the same thing over and over again and expect something different, you know, that's a kind of insanity, and that's what this book is about. Right now, you mentioned uh, well, you talk about the fairy tale of economics, and you mentioned you were trained in economics. Do you still consider yourself an economist? I mean, I often describe myself as an ecological economist because I'm really trying to understand the interdependencies between the economic system and society and culture and the social system and the environment. Um, I see this work as reforming economics for sure. I'd love someday where we didn't have to have all these kind of competing camps and different flavors of economics and we could just call it economics. But since I really don't identify with the mainstream of economics, I tend to call myself an ecological economist. Right. And you tell a story in the, the book about how just something like that was it the JEL codes, the Journal of Economic Literature Codes, and you were stunned. Yeah. The way that, yeah, could you tell that story, please? I thought that was fascinating. Uh, I'd never thought the JEL codes would, uh, yeah, would be so controversial or, yeah, but please tell the story. I thought it was a good one. Well, I don't, I don't know that it's controversial. It just, it just gave me pause um, when I saw that ecological economics was uh, given its own code and treated as a sub-discipline 
of a field that we were trying to um, overturn or be the alternative to. Um, and this really is, you know, this this is, you know, I reflect on kind of why I wrote this book. Um, you know, it's a reflection on my career in ecological economics. Um, when ecological economics was formalized in the late 80s and early 90s, before it got a JEL code, uh, books and journals and organizations and degree programs and, and folks like me were supposed to be created um, to, to try to question the mainstream and reform it. So um, in many respects, this book is kind of my, my midlife crisis book, um, where I take a critical look at the history, state, and fate of, of this movement of ecological economics as an alternative to the mainstream. A funny story, about 10 years ago, I was the president of the U.S. Society for Ecological Economics, so one of these professional societies that have emerged to support this field. And I was at our conference at Michigan State University, and I had thrown my back out. So I was like, during most of the meeting, I was horizontal in my hotel room, just miserable, just really grumpy. And I was laying on my back, trying to write notes for my presidential address, right, um, to, to the society's membership. And I just was so grumpy, so grumpy, so grumpy. And it really got me thinking about the state and fate of ecological economics and made me think about like this code, Q57, right? The 700 plus subject areas of economics and how ecological economics was increasingly being absorbed by the mainstream, including by folks who call themselves ecological economists. In fact, at that meeting, there were just, you know, all of these sessions on monetary valuation of ecosystem services, which um, I saw as a, you know, a real slippery slope. You know, can we sort of challenge the mainstream with the logic of the mainstream and commodify nature? Um, so in a lot of ways, that kind of grumpy week in Michigan <laughs> yeah. set the stage for this book and, and, and my um, desire to, to really critique my own field. Right. Okay. So I, I probably should provide some background on, so these JEL codes, they're the codes that you would put at the bottom of an abstract for a journal right. paper or a conference paper to signal this is the field or the, the, the field of economics or the sub-discipline of economics that it's in. And so that helps them identify where it should go in conferences, for example, uh, which session. Yeah, yeah. And now you, it's interesting you mentioned so how environmental economists have come to start valuing nature or to quantify environmental damage uh, or to value what a wetland what wetlands are worth or uh, and I mean as a as an economist I've done various exercises like that in the past uh, I just want to understand where you're coming from do you think that's the wrong way to to go about it to to think about the the economy or the environment to think about well we're doing this many dollar, dollars of damage to the in, environment and and therefore we need to impose this this cost this charge on people who are damaging it and so to make sure we have sure. yeah you, you know where I'm going I mean, we're we're Absolutely. trying to get yeah get some sort of we're getting some solution by having the right uh, taxes and charges in place a Pagovian tax for example what do you what are your thoughts on that John. Yeah, the, the, the field of environmental economics and, and before that natural resource economics um, really preceded this field that I'm describing of ecological economics, really treating the economy as an ecosystem. 
Um, and environmental economics uh, has has its roots in the late 1960s, early 70s, and you know, reaching back to Pagot in the 20s and 30s, and fitting the environment inside the marketplace, right? Using crisis to correct these so-called market failures of what were framed as environmental externalities. So that's how I was trained uh, at Cornell University. I was in an agricultural economics department learning natural resource and environmental economics uh, and kind of, you know, buying into that logic of, of uh, the environment is just a failure of the marketplace. Ecological economics, you know, so that's valuable and that's pragmatic. And I've done my share of work um, that is trying to make the case, the economic case for environmental protection. The challenge is, is when that tool, when that approach, when the sort of expansion of cost-benefit analysis to environmental concerns, when that rises to a worldview, right? When you commodify all of nature and when you reduce all social relations of humanity to market logic, we start to run into what um, economic historians or um, people in the 40s and 50s economist's name is escaping me right now, the, the fellow who wrote The Great Transformation, uh, Carl Polanyi. Yeah. Carl, Carl Polanyi warned of the of a merging market society, right? Where it's the rules and priorities of a market system that envelop the democratic system, that envelop our social and environmental values. So I'm okay using economics as a tool and treating economists as... Um, mechanics or janitors to sort of tune the market system. But when economists are sort of framed as um, overlords of the social and environmental system, right, or uh, conveyors of a master worldview, that's where my hairs go up. And that's, that's largely what this book is about and thinking about the progress illusion of economics. Right. Is the problem that we have this objective of maximizing economic growth where we're concerned about GDP? Are you arguing we're not as concerned about these environmental measures? How do you, what do you think we should be concerned about or how should we be sure. making decisions as a society? I'm making the case that 21st century economics should reflect 21st century problems and values. I think when the mainstream of economics or what we often call neoclassical economics was formed in the late 1800s, early 1900s, maybe the focus was well-placed on growing an economy of the efficiency of a market system, right? Of taking power away from the church and state and putting it into the hands of the, the consumer and producer. You know, it's, it's much like thinking about an ecosystem. At the early stages of any ecosystem, it's the pioneering species um, that are prioritized. It's growth and competition and um, resource exploitation that is prioritized. But as the system matures, as the system grows into a fixed, fixed environment, the goals should change, right? The goals should move away from growth and towards maintenance, towards durability, towards resilience, away from competition and towards cooperation, right? Away from sort of uh, thinking about the number one priority is to grow our way out of problems, to realizing that growth itself creates problems that growth can't fix. So ecological economics reflects a, a maturing of economic thinking 
uh, that reflects the challenges of the 21st century. Right. Okay. So it seems you're, so yeah, you're concerned about the problems that growth can't fix. Okay. Uh, you don't think regulations can help? I mean, because we've got cleaner air. No, exactly. I mean, I think we need to move beyond just economic instruments to fix things, using the market to fix market failures, right? But really trying to find that balancing act between market mechanisms and government regulation, between um, improving and making government work better instead of the opposite narrative of, you know, government is the problem, not the solution. Um, you know, in this book, I reflect on kind of my own upbringing in the United States and my parents' generation, you know, and, and growing up in the K- Kennedy years, where the narrative was, you know, um, you know, ask not what your what you can what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And then I grew up in the Reagan Thatcher generation, right? And the Reagan narrative was, um, you know, it's all about the individual. It's greed is good. Um, don't ask what you can do, you know, do for your country. Get government off our backs. You know, that's what we need to do. So I think in an age of climate chaos, in an age of the sixth mass extinction, in an age of growing inequality. Um, the narrative has to change. The story has to change. We have to recognize that a system and an economics that was created in the context of a 1940s, 1950s expansion out of the Great Depression um, had its day. And now um, the realities of our time need to, uh, need to start to shape a new reality. Okay. And so what does that what does that mean, John? Does that mean we need uh, we need policies re- redistribution? Is that what you're arguing for to address inequality? We need greater environmental. Uh, well, uh, we need to uh, prioritize the environment. Uh, I mean, that's going to be. Ch- I mean, obviously, the environment's important. I'm not denying that. I'm just thinking in in Australia here. I mean, it's we've got very stringent environmental regulations already. And if we have more stringent environmental regulations, it'd be very difficult to develop anything. Uh, so I, I'm just wondering what it all means. Is it, does it mean we have to accept a lower standard of living in the future? Are you pessimistic about technological change or ability to, to innovate our way out of these constraints? Could, could you talk about that, please? Yeah, I, th- I think that's too narrow of a frame. When, if, when you think about economy and environment and, and what I'm concerned about, um, there is reams of evidence show that so-called advanced economies such as the United States and Australia built on hyper-individualism, built on the legacy of, of a social disease that sociologists call affluenza, right? Or this addiction to consumerism. That this model um, of progress has um, leaves a little, a lot to be desired. And that in fact, maybe we've been in a progress recession for some time now. Scholars in the United States and Australia and, and dozens of other countries around the world have been estimating for years now what's called the genuine progress indicator, something that is meant to be uh, compared to um, the more common gross domestic product. Um, and, and what this indicator does is it recognizes that a growing economy has benefits and has costs. Um, in fact, I first discovered the GPI when I was in, in grad school in the early 1990s. And in the U.S., we were in, in the, uh, the Bush 1 recession. 
And there was a beautiful article written in the, in the, in the Atlantic, and it had the title of something like, um, if GDP is up, why is America so down, right? And we were kind of in this recovery state, and people were, you know, economists were saying, hey, the economy's growing, we're all good again. <laughs> and the average American was saying, I'm not good. I can't make ends meet. I, I, I'm miserable. Um, and the same narrative has popped up at the tail end of every recession ever, ever since. In fact, I started working on this book at the tail end of the so-called Great Recession. And the same thing was happening. We were using the instruments of economics, using mainstream thinking to grow our way out of problems. And the average person was saying, who is this benefiting? And who does it, who, who's paying the cost? Yeah. So the GPI goes through this series of 26 some odd calculations and says, what are the true benefits of a growing economy? And what are the costs? What are the environmental costs? What are the social costs? And have shown quite convincingly that since at least the late 1970s for a country like the United States, we've been in a progress recession. The GDP has grown, 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 but these alternative metrics, whether it be GPI or surveys on quality of life or the ecological footprint, these things have not improved. They have not kept up with the pace of growth, right? So... We have to start asking at these kind of higher levels, what are we doing this for, right? What's, what's the new balancing act in a maturing economy? How should we reprioritize what is the good life? And how should we, I mean, you frame it as accept the lower standard of life, the standard of living, a material standard of living. Um, I frame it as, as asking the question, how do we live better? How do we, how do we live well within our means? Yeah, sure. I, I can I can understand that. I I guess what I'm thinking, John, is that at the moment in Australia, one of the big issues is uh, well the rising cost of living, high inflation relative to to wages, and a lack of housing. I mean, we've got a dire shortage of housing here in Australia. Now, I mean, look, there are a variety of reasons for that, possibly, but. I mean, at, at the moment, when I, I'm, I'm looking at things, I'm thinking a bit more economic activity to construct houses would have been good over the last <laughs> 10 to 20 years. And, uh, and, and we've got rising cost of energy. So, uh, yeah, I take your point. I think, I think a lot of people out there would be concerned, though, about this. Uh, yeah, they, they, uh, the, the, yeah I, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily... Uh, wanting to criticize what you're saying, I understand where you're coming from. I'm, I'm just, yeah, that, that's where I'm coming from, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And, and, and that's the big question, right? Like, can the same kind of thinking that got us into these current messes that is making the billionaire class hugely, hugely more materially well off, while the rest of us feel like we're on a treadmill just barely getting by, can the same kind of system, right? that has privatized the benefit of growth and socialized the cost, can that continue or should it continue, right? Should we sort of create a social movement and start to ask, what is the economy's purpose? Who is the economy for? <laughs> and growth for whom and, and, and for what? Um, now, you know, when I debate economists, they always say, look, look, come on, come on. You know, you're not being fair. Economics is just a model. It's a model of progress. All models are wrong. Some are useful, right? They quote George George Box, the British oh, yeah. statistician. 
right? All models are wrong, some are useful. And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. All models are wrong, some are useful. But what Box didn't ask is useful for whom, right? So in the U.S., <laughs> we're seeing these energy prices and we're seeing record profits to uh, oil companies. In the U.S., we're seeing housing shortages, right? Yet we're seeing record rents to the ownership class. In the U.S., we're seeing um, families, you know, struggle to get by in these kind of post-pandemic months and, and year um, and kind of returning to, you know, trying, trying as quickly as we can to get back to normal, right, be, be the pre-pandemic years. And a lot of us and a lot of folks that are most vulnerable in this current system are saying, we don't want to go back to normal. Normal was already in crisis. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. Okay, can I ask about that genuine progress sure, indicator? Sure. Who's producing it? And can I ask you about what what some of the, the uh, variables that go into it are? Uh, please, uh, yeah, really interested in that because uh, look, I understand the criticisms of GDP, and I mean, at least if we're destroying or we're subtracting from the environment or we're we're damaging the environment, that you probably should recognise that as some sort of disinvestment or a loss of capital stock. So, yeah, would you be able to explain the uh, the genuine progress indicator, please? Sure. I mean, it starts with the basic premise, right, that the economy is a subsystem of the environment. And that when the economy grows, it has opportunity costs. So, I mean, it's, it's a basic, it's built on basic economic principles that um, a growing system has benefits and has opportunity costs. So with GPI, we start with consumption, the biggest part of GDP. Um, and, and we say, okay, let's take consumption and then let's correct it for income inequality. Um, to recognize which, what Pagot recognized in the 1920s and 30s, right? that uh, growing incomes grow and, and give diminishing returns, right? That the next unit of, of income to a rich person creates far less welfare society than the next income, uh, next unit of income to uh, a low-income family or a low-income person. So we correct for income inequality. Um, we then go through a series of calculations that, for example, take um, consumer durables in GDP and say, you know, a society... A GDP benefits by building a throwaway society with durables, washing machines, automobiles, uh, long-lasting expenditures. If they wear out often and have to be replaced, that's great for GDP, right? But is it good for progress? So we say, okay, here's the expenditure of durables and here's the benefits of durables, right? Over time, these things are supposed to last more than a year or two or three years. Um, so there's economic adjustments. There's an adjustment for over, for underemployment, right? Idle work, people who wish they could work more. So it's got that kind of basic economic logic built into it. 
But then there's a whole category of depletion and pollution costs, right? We shouldn't be treating depletion of our soils, our water, our air as income. In fact, any business that treated depreciation of capital assets as as income instead of costs wouldn't be in business very long. But that's exactly what we do in our economic bookkeeping for nation states. Um, then there's a whole series of interesting calculations on the social side of thing, right? Um, we have to recognize that the GDP only recognizes the value of your time in a market, earning income, earning wages, earning profits. Um, and so what the GPI, the general progress indicator says is, is that there's time use trade-offs, right? Every hour, extra hour of work, the opportunity cost of that is an hour not with your family, an hour not in your community, an hour not leisure. So rather than treating every single hour at work as a benefit with no cost, GPI goes through and says, let's be honest here, right? Work is good up to a point. Income is good up to a point. Consumption is good up to a point. But we have to recognize that consumption and income and growth have diminishing returns. And at some point, at some point, the growth of an economy creates more costs than benefits. What Herman Daly, one of the founders of ecological economics, who uh, unfortunately passed away a couple of weeks ago, um, called uneconomic growth, right? A growing economy that creates more costs than benefits. Okay. We could do a whole podcast just on GPI, so don't get me going. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I might, um, I'll, I'll have another look at it because, I mean, it's one thing that comes up in various conversations I have, uh, and I've been looking at the national accounts recently. I've had people on talking about that and the conceptual foundations, and we've, we've, we've mentioned every, that. Every time we have a recession, yeah. the critique of GDP comes up, right? Because yeah. it's like, hey, wait a second, growth isn't providing. What's going on here? And every time coming out of a recession, we question the metric, and then we kind of um, you know start growing again and says, say, Phew, okay, let's go back <laughs> to normal. Yeah, yeah. But but we have to kind of keep revisiting these alternatives. You know, the original architect, architects of GDP back in the 30s and 40s were very careful to say, this is not a measure of human progress, mm. human welfare. This is a measure of economic activity, which contributes to human welfare, but is not in and of itself human welfare. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree there. Now, what about what can be done? Do you have a, a set of uh, policy recommendations, John? Are there, what would what do you think needs to be done? Are there things there, there would be things that need to be done by governments? Are there things that need to be done by individuals? I mean, it sounds like well, okay, maybe you, you tell me if I'm wrong here. But when I read your book and I, I, I heard about the progress, I was reading about the progress illusion, the concerns about how we we're consuming too much. I mean, do we need to? Should we as individuals be consuming less? Is that is that part of your argument? We, should, we shouldn't be going on as many overseas trips. We shouldn't be using the car as often. We should think about our purchasing decisions, uh, not get a new washing machine uh, or get a, uh, only get one when it breaks down, try to repair things. What are you arguing in this book uh, is the solution? Well, what would, what would an economy look like 
that was built on maintenance, resilience, and cooperation instead of growth, efficiency, and competition, right? A, a, a late-stage maturing economy like yours in the Australia and ours in the U.S. That's what, that's what I'm asking. You know, a, an economy, uh, a mature economy should have different goals than uh, an economy at pioneering stages. So it, it really is about uh, a reprioritization of our goals, um, especially on consumption, right? Because there's ample evidence to show that um, we in the West are over consumers and our kind of addiction to consumption is creating um, psychological problems, social problems. That consumption has been kind of a, a, become a cure for social ills. Right, like a distraction. <laughs> I mean, the whole advertising uh, industry is, is is designed around the idea of kind of making you and I feel bad about ourselves, right? Yeah. To, to, to sort of fill the <laughs> void with more consumption. And I actually think this is one of the lessons coming out of COVID, right? As, as sort of people were, especially um, you know, high income people who who could weather the storm better than most, were forced to slow down. We're forced to be at home. We're forced to kind of reevaluate life's priorities uh, and found out that, you know, this kind of ever burning hamster wheel of economic growth isn't all that it's cut out to be. Um, so it's a reprioritization of goals, um, which is going to have to reprioritize uh, policy instruments. Um, Daly, Herman Daly used the analogy of a, a, a plimson, plimsoll line. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right of a cargo ship, right? So this is the line that's painted on a ship, very easy technology. And as the, as the cargo ship is loaded, it sinks into the water. And when it gets to the line, you're supposed to stop, right? Because mm. you're, in, you're in danger of overloading the ship. Um, so if we sort of reprioritize and think about the plimsoll line of an economy, we can't just more equally or equitably distribute the cargo of an overloaded ship and expect it to be resilient. We can't just more efficiently load an overloaded ship and expect it to weather the storm. As the plimsoll line goes underwater, right, and there's ample evidence to say that we are kind of in an overshoot on a lot of environmental uh, parameters, you're in danger of sinking the ship, especially in stormy waters. So this analogy implies that as we run up against planetary boundaries, planetary limits to growth, the scale of the economic system is way more important to stress than distribution or efficiency. And if we can't count on a growing uh, system to solve distribution problems, then we're going to have to quickly think about the fairness of this, this distribution of benefits and costs of that system. And then and only then can we get to efficiency, which is the priority of economics. So this means that you know, new policy instruments that, that focus on scale, distribution, then efficiency is the way to go. And um, I talk a lot about this in the, in the last chapter of the book as I kind of wrestle with the idea of, um, how did I put it, radical pragmatism, right? Yeah. Lots of pragmatic things that we can do now, for example, to wean ourselves from fossil fuels, you know, home weatherization and um, carbon taxation and, um, you know, maintenance of our systems, uh, so uh, electrification of transportation, uh, transition to renewable energy. But all of these are really hard to do 
in an economy that continues to bloat, an economy that continues to grow. So we have to be thinking about the scale of the system, and that's probably the radical part of radical pragmatism, right? What's it going to take to rain power away from the status quo? That part of the system that's benefiting from this growth model and create an economy that works for all. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering what exactly that I- involves. And is this part of this whole idea of degrowth? Is that what you're arguing for? I, I've heard about this concept of degrowth that, that that's sure. coming up. And I, there was an article in the FT about it the other day. So, yeah, I'm just wondering you know, what, what needs to be done. I mean, do how do we... Uh, how how do we have that? Uh, the, how do we recognize those constraints? I mean, you mentioned yeah. carbon tax. I mean, that's something that. But you're also saying that that's not going to be enough. And I mean, given current, not a magic bullet, but mm. it changes the changes the system. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. Degrowth de- is 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 the sort of social movement side of ecological economics, if you will. Um, it it's a question of how do we orchestrate a just transition to a right sized economy? Now, in some parts of the world. And for some people in the world, you know, growth still creates more benefits than costs. But there are plenty of parts of the world and plenty of people in the world where growth creates more costs and benefits, right? So we have to orchestrate a kind of race to the middle. Um, in fact, if you plot something like um, the HDI, the Human Development Index, which is a UN-level index that's mm. used to sort of monitor, you know, the benefits of development, if you plot HDI at national levels against energy per capita, you get this curve, right, that the initial development improves considerably with just a little bit more energy use per capita, a little bit more environmental impact per capita, right? But only to a point. Mm. And then we get into this kind of club of countries where continuing use of energy, continuing depletion of the environment, continuing materialization of the economy doesn't improve development, doesn't improve the HDI. And you get this long tail with countries with the same HDI of countries that that consume 20 or 30 or 40 or even in some cases 80% less energy and material. So countries like mine in the US were way out on this tail where we're not getting improvements in human development yet we're consuming way, way, way more energy than the average human, right? And way more energy in the countries that have similar levels of development, similar qualities of life. So what are we doing, right? We've got to orchestrate a race to the middle. And whether you call that degrowth for the rich countries and to be more agnostic about growth for everyone else, like grow where it makes sense and shrink where it doesn't, that's the kind of century that we're in. That's the biophysical reality of the new economy. Mm. So, John, do you need a command economy to actually to orchestrate this transition to a right-sized economy? I'm just trying to think about how this would happen because, uh, I mean, people, a lot of people out there are just, you know, they're trying to live their lives and do the best they can. And a lot of people have to, a lot of families, the the couple, they have to work two jobs. They're trying to make ends meet. Uh I mean, they, yeah, they probably wouldn't see themselves as uh, as living a hugely materialistic lifestyle. But then, compared with other parts of the world, yeah, sure, it probably is. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering how we how we can do that. I mean, I'll yeah, yeah. My training as an economist, I assume you're training yeah. as an economist. 
we were sort of taught these these two different, you know, these roughly two different models. Hmm. Market economy and a command and control economy. And we were taught that this command and control thing is inefficient and unfair and 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 results in a kind of an overregulated world. And we, we need to the market economy is not perfect, but man, is it better than command and control? I've come to realize that that's a load of BS. The market economy is also a command and control economy, right? Markets are designed by those in power. Markets are social constructs, especially the last three, four decades of neoliberalism has created a kind of free market experiment, right? That is concentrating the benefits and widely distributing the costs. Um, so talk to the average guy or gal on the street and ask them, is this economic system working for them? And if they say no, do you say, well, let's double down on the logic of the system or do we try something different, right? So we're finding that more cooperative forms of, of economies um, are resulting in a more shared benefits and shared costs. Um, we're working with a group called the Next Systems Project that has been sort of systematically um, cataloging different political economics systems at local scales, at community scales in the United States that have dramatically different outcomes and, and dramatically different structures. It's not this either or of command and control of free markets. It's blending things in between. It's the continuum in between that is the secret sauce. So I don't buy that we, we immediately just have to go to command and control. Um, although in crisis, <laughs> what we learned from COVID is what happened is the world's government goes, goes to command and control, right? Um, if climate is a crisis, if, if environmental depletion is a crisis, we might be using the very system of free market thinking to push us into a state where the only option is going to be command and control. And I don't want that. You don't want that. People don't want that. We want our basic liberties and freedoms. Um, but we want to do it in a way that um, creates an economy for all, for our children and for our, for our future. Um, I also kind of reject the, the narrative of economic freedom, right? Because that's also, that's also painted as freedom to do things inst instead of freedom from tyranny, right? Freedom from the impacts of, of the environmental costs of a growing system. Freedom from the social inequalities of a system that's geared towards making the billionaire class even richer. Um, freedom from the cost of a growing economy is what we should be thinking about. Not freedom to do things to our neighbors, to our environment, and to future generations that ultimately are going to come back and bite us in the tail. Yeah. Are you buying any of this? <laughs> well, I'm interested in the new systems project. Uh, I'll have to next, next systems, systems yeah. next systems yeah. project. I'll have to to look into that. I mean, do you have any examples of those communities you were talking about? Well, it's it, it's examples of of uh, so you take the U.S. and you think that we're this kind of you know outside looking in, and the narrative on the mainstream news channels is that you know we're this free market capitalistic system. It's actually not true. <laughs> so much of what makes the U.S. economy work is uh, cooperative ownership, collective ownership, uh, state-run companies, state-run state banking systems, state-run state systems of, 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 that make the, the economic system work. 
Uh, take the banking sector, there's trillions of dollars in uh, co-ops where the depositors get votes on the matters of their banks. Um, take um, agriculture and um, education and um, even en energy and electric utilities. So much of those industries are run by cooperatives. Um, in fact, um, electricity cooperatives um, uh, deliver electricity in the United States to a well over uh, half of the geography of the United States to rural communities um, where the, the sort of uh, economics doesn't work for, for investor-owned uh, companies. Mm. There's experiment after experiment of, after experiment of different kinds of uh, political economic institutions that, uh, ha that we have lots of lessons to learn from. And this is what I meant in the beginning when I talked about, you know, economics, part of the progress illusion is, is this kind of illusion of history, right? To think that the current economic system, the neoliberal system, the free market system is, is, uh, is the only one, is, is, has, has been perfected, right? Is the kind of logical conclusion of everything, uh, along the way. And that we don't have to learn from our history. We don't have to revisit the debates. We don't have to consider the morality of our economic choices or their biophysical consequences. And, um, yeah, there's a lot. To, I mean, I'm speaking mostly as a, you know, from the perspective of an American, maybe it's different in Australia, but man, we have this sort of U.S. centric view of the world that everything we do is right. And everything that <laughs> we do is the best that it ever was. And we don't need to learn from our history and we don't have to need to learn from other, um, other experiments around the world. And um, where I land is that's uh, some pretty insular thinking. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll start wrapping up soon, John. This has been, yeah, really uh, thought provoking. Uh, so uh, it's good to have you on the show. Can I ask about neuro neuroeconomics? So you talk about that in the, the book. This is a, a new field I've only learned about recently. What, What's that? What's your interest in that field, and what's it broadly trying to tell us, or what's it found? Yeah, sure. Well, so this is where you know uh, I'm I'm kind of researching the book. Like, what are some alternative ways to think about the the human agent in our economic models? Because in economics, we're taught a very, very, very narrow version of humanity, right? Which is sometimes called like a subspecies of human, Homo economicus. <laughs> Yeah. This isolated individual at a point in time, right, who just wants more. The rational utility maximizer, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And both within economics and outside of economics, you know, we're learning that when we test our theories with real data, not just abstract mathematics, that the sort of foundations of this rational actor model uh, unravel. Um, so... What I do in the book is I explore what you might call borderland disciplines, right? Where economists have um, cooperated with other disciplines, especially other um, uh, natural science disciplines. Um, and so neuro neuroeconomics is one of those examples where economists have collaborated with neurosciences to ask questions of uh, proximate cause, right? So in science, we think of proximate cause and ultimate cause. And in the case of economic decision-making, proximate cause is asking how we make decisions, whereas ultimate cause is more 
a question of why do we make decisions that we do? Neuroeconomics is an example of a borderland discipline and proximate cause where literally economists are taking test subjects <laughs> with their neuroscience colleagues, asking people to solve economic puzzles uh, or make economic choices and watching their brain light up, right? And trying to understand where and when do the, the kind of um, precepts of the rational actor model hold up and where don't they? Um, so it's one of these borderland disciplines uh, such as neuroeconomics is, is an example, but also behavioral economics, experimental economics, where we're trying to kind of understand the brain in mm. the case of neuroeconomics, the whole human in the case of uh, behavioral economics, groups of humans in the case of experimental economics, um, groups of groups in the case of institutional economics, and then our entirely evolutionary history as a species in the case of evolutionary economics. So these are all examples of, of the isolated discipline of economics starting to cooperate with other fields and building um, what I call in the book, borrowing from the biologist E.O. Wilson, a more consilient form of economics where we find the jumping together of knowledge um, to, to really um, launch, a, launch a 21st century version of, of this field. Right. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I'll, um, it's something I want to have a, a closer look at because uh, I definitely yeah, recognize the limitations of that that standard economic model. I mean, for years, economists were saying, well, it's uh, we recognize that all the assumptions are a bit uh, unbelievable, but as long as it makes good predictions, then it's, uh, then it's fine. But it turns out it may not actually make good predictions. <laughs> So uh, yeah, I mean, I go I go through the history of you know the, the the running joke, of course, right, is that economists have successfully predicted seven of the last three recessions, <laughs> and so so it's uh, this this model of the rational actor model turns out to be not a very predictive model, or a model again, all models are wrong, some are useful, but we should start asking useful for whom, and it turns out this this isolated model is useful for the billionaire class, but not useful for the rest of us. Righto. So uh, we might start yeah, wrapping up. I'm keen to just learn about what are you hoping this book will achieve, John? What's your, what are your hopes for this, this book? My generation. I'm, I'm 50. I have a birthday this month. I'm 52, going on 53. My generation was inspired by the works of a number of what you might call renegade economists, right, who sort of saw a different path. Um, folks like Herman Daly, who I mentioned, who uh, we just recently lost at 84 years old. Um, I mean, Herman was on a similar journey that I was. He started out with aspirations to be a growth economist. He thought that the the logic and approach of market fundamentalism could be sort of spread when he was, uh, you know, training to be an economist in the in the 50s and 60s to solve problems, uh, particularly problems of poverty, right? To, to grow the economy, to lift people out of poverty. But in his own educational journey, um, set against the aspirations of the Great Society in the U.S. in the 1960s, the civil rights and environmental movements of the 60s and 70s, you know, he was inspired by, inspired by the work of an earlier group of renegades, um, folks like uh, Nicholas Rozhensky-Rozhain, who wrote, on energy and the economic problem. 
bringing the principles of physics into economics. Um, Kenneth Boulding, mm. who wrote the infamous article, The Economics for the Coming Spaceship Earth, that was really coming to terms with the uh, opportunity costs of, of a growing economy inside of a fixed ecosystem. Um, John Kenneth Galbraith, who whose social critique in the affluent society really sort of, you know, early on questioned a society built around um, creating more and more affluence into an affluent class. And of course, um, the 1962 uh, book by Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, which was really in, impactful on Herman's thinking and, and design of an economic, a study of economy inside environment. So, you know, these sorts of scholars um, were also inspired by longstanding debates about the function and purpose of the economy, you know, really going back to the classical era of economics. When economics was uh, seen as, a, as a, a branch of moral philosophy, right? Not a not a pseudoscience hiding behind abstract mathematics. So, Herman's work was another kind of link in the chain. His work on economics as a life science, his first big published article. His work on steady state economics, his 1977 book. His work uh, on for the common good that he wrote in 1989 with a theologian John John Cobb. You know, he was creating another link in the chain that was trying to build a study of economics as if people and planet mattered. So um, I hope, <laughs> you know, this book is yet another link in this chain, a link that comes from my generation that can continues to build a, a, a kind of more modest, more humble economics that can contribute to social well-being and uh, environmental and environmental protection and not just simply um, deplete them. Okay, well, I'll put a link in the show notes. So if you're in the audience and you're interested in uh, in the in the progress illusion and look, it's got a lot of uh, it's got a lot of great information in it, lots of lots of great analysis and it's very thought provoking. so I, I certainly enjoyed or I, I learned a lot reading it i thought uh yeah it was good i liked how you went through the evolution of of economic thought and all the all the debates and uh you meant uh, what i was in struck by was uh, i didn't realize that uh, was it uh, tim bergen the famous dutch economist uh yeah, yeah he had First a bit Nobel, of a Nobel prize winner yeah, yeah he ended up uh he started to question the whole the the economic growth uh narrative in the was it the 80s or 90s or some you tell a story along those lines did, i thought was interesting yeah yeah so i think there's a lot of good stuff in there okay john any final thoughts before we wrap up look i really appreciate this uh thank you so much for your podcast i was listening to a bunch of your past pods in preparation for this and this is such a great show a very valuable show and um yeah folks are interested in this book um it's uh it's been published by Island Press, which is a, one of the one of the bigger uh, nonprofit publishers of environmental books in the U.S. And I'll give your listeners the secret code: <laughs> if they order a book from Island Press, they get twenty percent off if they enter enter the code Illusion. So, put on my my capitalism hat there for a second. Okay, is that all? Is that uh, does capitalization matter? Is it, or, or did you just tell me that and I missed it? Sorry, was. <laughs> No, it's, it, I don't know that it needs to be capitalized, but it's the, the word illusion is the code for 20% off. Okay, good one. Well, I guess people try it and if 
Um, <laughs> yeah, hopefully it doesn't matter whether you capitalize it or not, or try it, capitalize, and then yeah. if that doesn't work, try it without caps. Okay, very good. Okay, John Erickson, thanks so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, really appreciated your insights. So uh, that's been terrific. Thank well. you. Thank you. Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.